0: The Lord has everlastingly set his loving hand upon us. And we're mindful of that as we turn to his word now. We are turning to hear the word of a God who has loved us like that. So, like David, we don't want to get away from him. Instead, we practically run to him. And we're doing that now as we turn to the reading and the hearing of his word seeking out this God, wanting to hear his voice. Not just the testimony that we hear in the rains outside, but the testimony here that shines forth the voice that sounds forth from this book. You can see in your bulletin that we are turning to Mark chapter 9. I'm going to begin reading for us at verse 14, and we'll go down through verse 29. So listen now to the word of God. It throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So this is the word of our God. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this remarkable story that we've just heard. We pray that you would give us ears now to hear your voice. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. On one level, this is going to be a September 11th sermon. This is going to be a sermon that was inspired, at least initially, at least in my own mind, by what happened on September 11th. But I don't mean September 11th, 2001. I mean what happened on September 11th, 2016. So we're not going back 21 years. We're only going back six. What happened on September 11th, 2016? In fact, maybe right now you're sitting there wondering, am I supposed to remember what happened on September 11th, 2016? It's okay if you don't, but boy, I do. It was a Sunday. Just like this year, September 11th fell on a Sunday, and that was the Sunday that my children got up in front of the church and made a profession of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And by that profession were admitted to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. September 11th, 2016. Five questions posed to them that day. You know them well. One, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? Two, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, and do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel? Three, do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becometh the followers of Christ? Four, do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? Five, do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? Five questions, three children, that makes 15 I do's. It was a great day. And that's just it. It was a great day. And it was September 11th. And that's one of the things that was so striking to me about it at the time. One of the things that was so meaningful about it. I mean, we all know this. Just to hear the words, September 11th, just to hear that date, ever since 2001, and probably for the rest of my life, and I'm sure I'm not alone, just to hear those words, September 11th, is to provoke a kind of dreadful, visceral reaction. Just to see the date on our bulletin this morning is a little unsettling. Those words are the sound of death, and it's not lost on me that the events of that day unfolded before our eyes roughly between 9 and 10.30 in the morning, and this worship service does too. September 11th can sound like death, but then in 2016, on a Sunday morning, it became the sound of life, eternal life, because that September 11th was a day to make profession Of faith in the one who is life. So in 2016, for me, it's like that date was transformed. It's almost as if September 11th, that date and the sound of it in my ears was redeemed because it went from death to life, or at least life was layered over it, life that's better and stronger. So I got to thinking about this Sunday when I noticed that September 11th was going to fall on a Sunday again this year. And I got to thinking again about the very idea of making a profession of faith, the very idea of saying, I believe, I believe in Jesus. And then sure enough, last Sunday, when we gathered for evening fellowship here in this building, we sang that song that says, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's why we're turning to Mark 9 this morning. Because it's here, as we just heard, it's here in this chapter, it's here in the story, that we meet that man who said that to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. And I got to thinking, how's that for a profession of faith? I believe, semicolon, help my unbelief. Can't you just imagine somebody getting up in front of the church to make profession of faith And they're asked that second question Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He's offered in the gospel? That question is posed, and the answer they give back is Yeah, but I do. I do believe, but can I say a little more? Can I elaborate? I do. I do believe. I have faith. But I'm also keenly aware of the fact that my faith isn't all that it ought to be. And I can also say that I don't want to stay that way. And I can also say that I'm going to spend the rest of my life looking to Jesus to help me. How's that for a profession of faith? That's beautiful. Because it's true. That's really what a person is admitting When they get up to make a profession of faith, they're saying, Yes, I believe, and yes, I need Jesus to help me with the work that remains because my faith is in all that it ought to be. So it turns out, lo and behold, that this man that we meet in Mark 9 is a model after all, even a model for us as we contemplate on this day of all days what it means to make a profession of our faith not just before the church but before a watching world and to do so as it were to Jesus himself for isn't it Jesus who poses the question I've always loved this story and, and this man that we meet here in Mark 9 I've always valued his presence in the Bible I do think I value him more now As a father, because there is something about the desperation that this man feels concerning his son as a father. And there's something about the raw honesty that that fatherly desperation brings out of him in this episode. I'm so glad we have this man in the Bible The basic storyline here in the passage that's before us, I think it's clear enough. Father brings his son to Jesus. He brings his son to Jesus because the boy is tormented by a demon. And understandably, the man wants Jesus to drive the demon out, set his boy free. Because Jesus isn't around at first, the father asks Jesus' disciples to do it themselves, and that's not unreasonable because just a few chapters ago, back in chapter 6, we're told, yeah, this is something that Jesus' disciples did in his name, cast demons out. So perfectly understandable that this father, in this moment of desperate urgency, asks Jesus' disciples to do it for him, but they cannot. They're unable to do it. The whole scene causes a stir. And you can only imagine. It must have been a chaotic scene. And tense and, and charged with emotion and controversy. It even causes an argument with some of the scribes who are there. So the father asks the disciples to do it. They're unable to do it. But, of course, when Jesus gets there, he's perfectly able to do it. And he does it, and the boy is restored. So there you have our basic storyline as it unfolds. A few things to notice by the way here before we think about lessons to learn. A few things by the way. First of all, what we've got here is an instance of demonic Possession, demonic troubling, there was a flurry of this kind of demonic activity during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. His, his very presence and his preaching and his power, it, it brought out the worst of these worst of creatures. Even they knew. Even they could tell that his very presence and ministry signaled that the battle had been joined in a new way. Even they understood. So this demon, in this story, when he realizes that he's in the presence of the Son of God, he convulses the boy. He reacts. And he goes to work as he has so many times before. If nothing else, brothers and sisters, it tells us this much. How wicked... Must these unseen wicked powers be to do this to a child? <clears throat> not because children are innocent and pure, let's not be naive, but because children are still in a position of relative powerlessness and dependence and trust. Even more so, this boy who's left unable to speak or hear, how wicked must these wicked powers have been to do this to a child? It tells us something about the conflict that Jesus came into, the conflict that Jesus himself provoked simply by coming into the world. So I love the fact that when it says he cast the demon out, Jesus says, come out of him and never enter him again. This isn't just liberation. This is lifelong liberation. The battle has been joined. And this Jesus of Nazareth, make no mistake, he is more than conqueror. And then notice this as well. The disciples fail in this instance. They're unable to do what the Father asks them to. To do, And when it's all over, Jesus has to explain to them why. What does he say? He says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So apparently, the disciples failed because in some way they were relying upon themselves. It's not spelled out. It's not fully explained. But that must be what was going on. Apparently, they weren't looking to God directly in prayer for the power that was needed to make this happen and so they fail. It's a kind of unbelief on their part. And so Jesus sighs the way that he does. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? So those are a few things to notice, by the way. But for our purposes here this morning, notice notice what is the heart of this story. This back and forth between Jesus and the Father. Look again at verse 21. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood. Has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can. All things are possible for one who believes Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. The word immediately, that's a word that you keep coming across in Mark's gospel account. He uses it a lot. Mark tells the story of Jesus in a way that's fast-paced. Immediately, Jesus said this. Immediately, Jesus did that. It's fast-paced. It's one thing right after the other. Well, here it's immediately that this father cries out like this. It's, it's fast-paced. It's instinctive. It's raw. You almost wonder if he, if he cries out like that and then thinks, Did I just hear myself say that to Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus makes this claim, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately, right away, instinctively, this man is exposed. He's desperate and he's honest and he is faithful in that honesty. I believe, help my unbelief. So let's just pause over that statement. And there are three points, three lessons that I want to point out here about that statement on the Father's part. I believe help my unbelief. The first point is the believer's belief. The second is going to be the believer's unbelief. And the third is going to be the believer's prayer. So first of all, the believer's belief. Understandably, we're, we're powerfully drawn to what The man says toward the end when he says, help my unbelief, that touches a nerve, and we'll get there in just a minute or two. But don't be so drawn to that that you skip over what he says first, which is, I believe. This man does believe in Jesus, and he doesn't just say it. He shows it. He shows it twice. He shows it first when he says, help my boy. He says it a second time when he says, help me. This man does believe in Jesus. What exactly he believed about Jesus, we can't know. In other words, how much, at this point, how much had this man heard about Jesus? We can't know. And, and for that matter, never forget the story that we're reading here in Mark 9. This didn't happen in 2022. This happened in a remarkable moment in human history. At this point in human history, the Son of God has come into the world, but not yet has he died and been raised. What that means is that the truth about Jesus hadn't yet been made entirely clear when this story happened. So it's not just, who knows what this man's circumstances were and so forth. It's also, this is a remarkable moment in human history when only so much has been made plain about who this Jesus of Nazareth really is. So what exactly he believed about Christ, we can't know. But we do know this much. Because all we've got to do is back up a few chapters to chapter 6. We do know this much. Mark chapter 6 says this, Wherever Jesus came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him, That they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. That's back in chapter 6. Jesus has been healing a lot of people. He's been setting a lot of people free. And it's not just that he's doing those mighty works. He's also preaching. He's also declaring the kingdom of God. In so many words, he's declaring himself as the one who'd come to usher that kingdom in. Well, word travels. Word gets around. That news, at least that much, had reached the ears of this desperate father, and this man believed that's why he came. That's why he came to Jesus. That's why he brought his son to Jesus. So, it's a good reminder of an important lesson about faith, Christian, including your faith and mine. When it comes to faith, the main thing is the object of your faith. What matters most is who or what you're trusting in. What matters most is not the relative strength or sophistication of your faith. A person's faith might be weak because they're a new believer. Or in the Bible, in the Gospels, during the course of Jesus' earthly ministry, a person's faith might have been shadowy simply because the truth about Jesus hadn't yet been made fully clear. Whatever it is, whether then or now, it's a good reminder. The main thing is the object of your faith. Although the good news is that if your faith is in Jesus, then your faith is going to grow over time. It is going to grow in strength and clarity, and that's because the Jesus that we trust in, at first with a weak faith, he doesn't leave us as we are, and he's strong. Even weak faith, if it's real, has a powerful future because of the Jesus that it rests in. Even shallow faith, if it's genuine, even shallow faith has a deep future because of Christ. So we can start there, the first of our three, the believer's belief. We get a glimpse of it here, and we can take it personally when it comes to our own experience, the believer's belief. But then secondly, we've got to keep going, of course we do, to the believer's unbelief. And that is perhaps what makes this man's cry as memorable as it is. He says, I believe... Help my unbelief. In other words, help me with regard to the unbelief that I still struggle with. So he admits it. Doubt, uncertainty, confusion. It's powerful because he admits it in this setting where there's a crowd and he doesn't whisper it. He cries out, help my unbelief. This is not a man who's going to try to diminish it or hide it now. This is no time for that. He cries out about his own doubt and uncertainty and confusion. He believes, but his belief doesn't run as deep as it should. Maybe the fact that Jesus' disciples couldn't pull it off has him rethinking, has him doubting, maybe, has him wondering if this Jesus is everything that he's heard he is. Whatever it is, his belief doesn't run as deep as it should, and it shows. It shows in this moment of testing and crisis and fear, and he admits it. And what he's struggling to believe is the truth of all mighty power, unbounded might. In Ephesians, Paul says God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. That's what this man is struggling to believe. Job says to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's what this man is struggling to grasp. The angel said to Mary, nothing will be impossible with God. That's what this man doesn't believe as fully as he should. Almighty power, unbounded might, and standing right in front of him is a man who's clothed with that power. Jesus of Nazareth a man who was anointed with the holy spirit beyond measure As Peter puts it later in the book of Acts he says God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the holy spirit and with power and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him Jesus Clothed, endowed with that kind of power from on high. And not only that, but he's anointed with that power precisely for a moment like this one. A moment to set a child free. Because Jesus is the man of Isaiah 61 who says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to set people free. That's Jesus. And this Father says to Jesus, who has that power, who has that mission of compassion, he says to him, if, if you can, if you can do anything. And it's the if, it's that one word, if it's how much we can reveal with one little word. And and to get clear on this on how telling was the if. There's a helpful contrast in the book of Mark. There's another story that takes place earlier in the book of Mark, way back in chapter 1. Jesus heals a leper. And what that man, the leper, says to Jesus way back in chapter 1 is different from what our father says to Jesus here in chapter 9. You don't need to turn back there, but listen, chapter 1 to what a leper says to Jesus, who wants Jesus to heal him. This is chapter 1, verse 40. A leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. And then Jesus healed him. See, that was the right thing to say to Jesus in that moment. The right thing to say to Jesus was, I know that you can. I get that. I don't doubt that. The only question is, if you will. I know that you're able. I trust that you're endowed with almighty power. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The only question is, what's your purpose right now? What's your purpose for me? Is it your purpose, is it your will, to exercise that power that you've been clothed with in such a way as to heal me? And I'm not going to presume to say that I know what your purpose is. See, that was the right thing to say to Jesus in that moment. Not if you can, but if you will. I know that you can. That's the difference between the faith of a believing leper In chapter 1, and the doubt of a believing father in chapter 9. So, this man here in chapter 9, no, he stands out, willing to cry out like this. And as I mentioned earlier in our worship service, he's not the only one. Not the only person you encounter as you read through the Bible who believed, but struggled to believe. In the power of God. Struggled to believe in the power of God at work for us personally. So that's why I read for us earlier about Sarah. Genesis chapter 18. These divine visitors say to Abraham, Where is Sarah, your wife? He said, She's in the tent. And the Lord repeats the promise, I will surely return to you about this time next year. Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. That is such a juicy detail, isn't it? While this extraordinary conversation is going on, probably just a few yards away, she's listening at the door of the tent. How beautiful is that? Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out, my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? A few verses later, she denies it, but she can't get away with it. No, you laughed. She believed. Abraham did too. But they're confronted with a promise that's built upon the power of God, that's premised upon the power of God. And it was a struggle for them to believe the way they shouldn't. So Sarah and Abraham are an example of this. You know who else was an example of this? Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Zechariah wasn't just a believer. I mean, this is a guy who's practically in the Bible Hall of Fame of believer. Luke chapter 1, the very beginning of Luke's gospel account refers to Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, says they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Yeah, he's a believer. But when the angel makes this promise that's premised upon the power of God, Zechariah's response, well, it isn't to laugh, but it's a little bit like that. Zechariah believed, and yet in this moment, he didn't. And the angel said so. And Zechariah became very quiet for months because of it. So this father in Mark 9, the one we've got before us today, not the only one. There are plenty of people in the Bible who believed but who struggled to believe in the power of God. And let us say, thank God for that. That he's given us this book with these stories, these true stories, these people, these real people. Because that kind of unbelieving doubt, that's something that's characteristic of the Christian life in this life to this day not just in biblical days. On the one hand, it is just that. It is the Christian life. And so this is something that we deal with as believers. We do believe in Jesus. And I want to underscore, that is the deepest, truest thing about us now. The Bible does call us believers. So that's a fitting label for us now. That's the deepest, truest thing about us. On the other hand, the things that we believe About him, it could be that they've taken relatively shallow root in our souls. Could be that we haven't thought about them quite so much. We haven't come to grips with the the practical implications of the things that we've come to believe. Could be that in a moment of testing and trial, our confidence wavers. Could be that experiencing some fierce opposition causes us to draw back. This is still true to this day not just in Jesus' day. So the believer's unbelief. And that that leads us finally then to the third of our three. The first was the believer's belief. The second was the believer's unbelief. Now third and final, the believer's prayer. This man says to Jesus, help me, help me. Help my unbelief. Don't leave me like this. As somebody who's come to see again that I wrestle with doubt and uncertainty and confusion, help me. Jesus, these things that I believe about you, cause them to take deep root in my soul. Lead me to think about them. So that I ponder their implications. When you bring testing and trial my way, grant me to stay strong. When you bring fierce opposition my way, help me to stand my ground. So too we say, Jesus, help me. Help me like that. So you see how this whole thing comes full circle in the end. In the end, We've come back around to the believer's belief. Because this prayer is a believing prayer. It's a prayer of faith. This man says to Jesus, help me. Why? Because he believed that Jesus could. It wasn't just a shot in the dark. And it's the same thing with us when we pray it. We say, Jesus, strengthen my faith. And we say that to him precisely because we believe that he can and that he will. Initially, this man came to Jesus with one particular request in mind. It was a request for his boy. He probably didn't anticipate that it would lead to a request of a very different sort, a request concerning his own heart. He came wanting the power of Jesus to set his son free. He ended up asking for the power of Jesus to set himself free from his own lingering doubts. Jesus said to him, all things are possible for one who believes. Well, that includes the believer's own growth in grace. So that our faith is strengthened over time. Even though it can be hard for us to see it, and it can. So it came full circle in his own experience and that ought to come full circle in our own because all three of these things that we've noticed here my brothers and sisters they're true of us as well and and you want to stop and think about each one of the three ponder them first of all the believers believe Christian let me say it to you again when it comes to your Christian faith What matters most is not the quality of your faith. It's the trustworthiness of your Savior. And he is of the highest quality. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. He does not ebb and flow the way our faith does. So rest in him, the believer's belief, your belief, your Savior. So too, the believer's unbelief. Christian, that's something to take To heart as well, and I know it seems like an odd kind of comfort, but I want to say to you, take comfort. The fact that you wrestle with doubt and uncertainty and perplexity, that doesn't mean that you're not a believer. It just means that you're a believer who's not yet in heaven. Take comfort, don't despair, don't despair about yourself and about your own spiritual state. So take comfort like that. But then keep going to our third point as well, which is the believer's prayer. Don't settle. For the doubts that you wrestle with. Don't. I'd put it this way. Don't make peace. With your lingering unbelief. As if it's okay. And you can just acquiesce in it. And get used to it. Now go after it. Is there some. Particular Bible truth. That you're having a hard time. Getting a firm grip on these days. And then is there some particular reason in your life, some factor, some cause that's responsible for that lingering unbelief? Go after it. Don't settle for this. Go after it in prayer. Say, Lord, I believe. Now help me. Help my unbelief. And then when you've prayed that, get up off your knees and act like somebody who meant it. Which means getting yourself in the Word. Surrounding yourself with Christian fellowship. Getting yourself connected with fellow believers. Because we need one another. So yes, Jesus helps us. And that's how he does it. By his word. By fellowship. By connectedness. By prayer. That's why I say pray this prayer and then act like it. Act like you mean it. Prove that you want this. And as I was saying when we got started... Christian, that is itself a way of following through on your profession of faith. The very fact that you can relate to this man here in Mark 9, that doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. That doesn't mean that you were a hypocrite when you professed your faith before the church, before the world. Actually, it means that you are a Christian. It just means that you're a Christian in this age, in this present evil age in this age when we still struggle, when we still need help, in this age when dreadful things happen in the world and drive us to our knees again to contemplate the power of God. So, brothers and sisters, whenever you find that you don't stand in awe of the truth of the gospel in the way that you should, whenever you find That it's hard to hold on to the truth of God's power even at work in your own life. Remember this man. Remember this man in Mark 9. Remember his cry, his immediate cry, I believe. Help my unbelief and make it your own because Jesus has made you his own. Let's pray together. Jesus, that's true. You've made us your own, which is by itself a staggering thought. And we say to you today, not staring you face to face in the flesh as that Father did, but now by faith, we say to you that we believe. Help our unbelief. We know that you can. And now we know that you shall. Amen.